You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Let me invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 11, as we continue walking through uh, this four weeks here in this chapter and really what God has, by His providence, led us to in preparation for Easter. Uh, Such a powerful story here, the story of Lazarus. And even as the purpose has been throughout the rest of this gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name, the same purpose exists here in John chapter 11. That we might see the resurrection of Lazarus and be pointed to a greater still resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe that He's the Son of God and trust for life in His name. Trust Him for salvation. So this text is such an appropriate text for us, for what we have been through over the course of the last few weeks, Um, much um, uh, uh, pain and illness that we've seen, Um, much uh, loss of life. I I just keep hearing week after week of uh, someone else who's lost a friend uh, or a family member as a result of some illness. And and so we've kind of been through the, uh, the ringer, so to speak, over the last few weeks. And then when you add to that all the things that are going on in the world, um, it's kind of crazy out there. And uh, and so as we think about all that, that people are facing in, in Ukraine, and by the way, uh, believers who are there, uh, who are facing, it's not just unbelievers, there are believers there, the church, that uh, is facing the very real risk and cost of their lives. Uh, we ought to be praying for them every single day. Um, what is so beautiful about what is happening in Ukraine is that even amidst all of the oppression and the resistance uh, to the, the gospel, um, it is still going forward. Uh, Christians are still being faithful to proclaim the gospel and, and to gather and worship. And we can be thankful for that. Amen. And learn from that. We can learn what it means to face uh, death and even hold to Jesus there. Ukrainian believers are face-to-face with it every single day, face-to-face with death. It's not a subject we like to think about, is it? The, the idea of death. It's not something that we like to come face-to-face with. And when we face death, people respond in all kinds of different ways. Some people respond to death with an intense kind of agony thinking about the death of their loved ones, many of us having lost loved ones recently or at least sometime in the past. When you think about death, it may drive you to agony thinking about what might come to your loved ones and those around you. Some respond in agony. Some respond in fear. Fear of pain. Fear of the unknown. Fear of 
facing life after death or even fear of facing God. Many respond in fear when it comes to death. Some respond in avoidance. If we can just pretend that it doesn't exist, if we don't talk about it, then we won't have to deal with it. We've got plenty of time left. I I can think about that at some point in the distant future, but certainly not right now. If I just ignore it, it will go away. Some respond to death with anger, feeling abandoned or betrayed, like the life of a loved one was taken from us or taken too early or too soon. Or maybe some of us even feel relief in death and the loss of some people around us. These are just the beginnings of responses that we have to death. But as believers, we would like to think that we respond with joy and hope and anticipation to death because it's only a gateway to eternal life with God. And yet we too struggle at most of these points. The fact is, the fact is we must all face death and we cannot get away from it. And this text deals with two ultimate questions concerning death. Number one, where does hope in death ultimately come from? Where does hope in death ultimately come from? And number two, do we believe in that? Every one of you must answer that question. We must all answer the question, do we believe this? You're going to walk away today either believing what Jesus has to say or not believing it. And this is one of the most important texts in John, by the way, because this specifically, maybe even more clearly than any other text in the whole in the whole book, calls us to this question. Do you believe what Jesus is saying? Of course, the the command has been there the entire time to believe the question, though, has not yet been asked. Do you believe this? So where does hope ultimately come from and do you believe it? We should answer those two questions. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. So we begin together at verse 17 and following. John 11 and verse 17, the Bible says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Martha remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, it had, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that this morning as we come to this text, that we would come face to face with the reality of death. 
God, it is something that your word tells us every one of us will face and that we all must be prepared for. And there is an answer to facing death prepared. And so I pray that you would help us, even as we see the reality of death, to be uh, thrilled and elated at the reality of the gospel. God, would you fill our hearts with joy at who Jesus is and how he is the resurrection and the life. And I pray, Lord, if there is someone here in this place who is unprepared to face death, that today they would trust in Christ for salvation. I pray that you would remind each and every one of us as believers what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life, for us to have life in his name. And may we all be compelled to go into the world and proclaim this good news, that not only is Easter a holiday to be celebrated, but that it is a life to be lived in Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection. And I pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, if you were here with us last week, we began this chapter last week and we have seen this text before. If you were here a couple of weeks ago as we celebrated Ms. Donna's life, we were here in this passage of Scripture. But if you are in either one of those services, you know that this passage or this chapter, if you will, is so, so critical to understand one primary theme in the entire chapter. And that is our total inability to face death and Jesus' sovereign power over death. Those two things in union. Number one, our total ability to, our total inability to face death. And number two, Jesus' sovereign power over death. It is a powerful story, isn't it? Jesus raising another man's life. The story of Lazarus, we probably all, many of us grew up in church where that song uh, was played, Lazarus Come Forth. We all remember that big glorious part, right? Many of us, Dylan, I know you remember that song. Uh, if you ever went to one of the, I think it's New Song, right? Any of the New Song concerts, you'll see that whole uh, Arise My Love banner that falls down from the ceiling and just an amazing picture. It's, it's an emotional kind of moment. We love this story. And yet as powerful as this story is, it's not ultimately about the resurrection of Lazarus, but one who is going to rise after him. The one who is the great resurrection of the dead. This is this is the story about Jesus rising from the dead. Ultimately, it foreshadows that the the most powerful moment in all of human history when the son of God rises again. And and this is why Jesus can declare here in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so we see in this passage, this ultimate total inability of man to deal with the reality of death. It's a hard subject. Verse number 17 Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. John wants us to know here that Lazarus is actually dead. He's he's not unconscious or sleeping. There's some belief that would say in Jewish tradition that the soul remained with the body for three days. And after three days, that body, that person was definitely dead. And so they would preserve the body oftentimes in, with various oils and spices in order to ensure that the person was actually dead. Now, of course, that's a false belief. That's ludicrous. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? 
The moment you take your last breath as a believer is to step right into eternal heaven with God. It, it is to see Jesus face to face. And, and this is our glorious hope. But I think what John is doing here is trying to ensure that we understand Lazarus is not just sleeping. He's not just unconscious. He's actually dead. It says in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. By the way, this is how we know that Martha and Mary were Baptists, because they probably brought food to the home and they had this big gathering of people. We we do that well. Right. And they're consoling them. And, and, and when we're sad, I don't know about you, I'm sad. I like to eat. Um, and so this is what they're they're probably doing. But no doubt ministering to the needs of their friends as they mourn the loss of their brother. And then Jesus shows up like Jesus. Where were you four days ago whenever Lazarus was sick? Martha, in fact, says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Grief has completely overtaken Martha. The pain of loss is overwhelming. All of these friends have come and gathered and they're trying to give comforting words and things that would help Martha and Mary get through this time of losing their brother. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Lazarus is gone. Now, was it sudden? I don't know. Had Lazarus been sick for a long time? Maybe we aren't told that from the text. How old was Lazarus? Was, was he an old man? Was he a young man? We're not told that from the text either. How much treatment had he received at this point that had not worked? We don't know. How long had this family been praying for the healing of their brother? We don't, we don't know these things. We don't know the answer to those questions. There is no question, though, that Martha is in pain. So much pain that in a very raw moment, in this brief Fleeting moment of frustration. She says, Jesus, why weren't you here? See, for Martha and for the people that are gathered here, death was not a temporary reality. Death was a permanent end. This was the last they would see of their brother, at least here in this life. And built into her objection is that if Jesus had been here before he died, He could have stopped it. But now that he died, built into her objection, Jesus, if you had been here, is the fundamental assumption that there's nothing that Jesus can now do. If we're honest, we have similar responses when it comes to particularly painful circumstances. When it gets hard, we tend to grow impatient with God. Don't we? We tend to become frustrated. Some of us even can become angry with God because he he seems silent or absent or like he's not even hearing our prayers. In a moment of severe tragedy, in our estimation, God should have done something about the pain that we're in and he has failed to act. This is where Martha is. The kind of pain when someone stops believing in God. 
Others are found saying to a person like Martha, see, I told you, your God doesn't even exist. He's not even there for you when you need Him. Maybe a moment like Elijah faced there on the mountain whenever his God had seemingly not responded. For honest, we do have a hard time resolving the tension between a God who has unlimited power and a God who is wise and good and the ongoing presence of pain and evil in our lives and in the world around us. We have a hard time explaining how something like Ukraine can happen and God still be seated on His throne. But here is the hard reality. Even the death of Lazarus, though we find no ultimate fault in this text of Lazarus or his family, even the death of Lazarus is not Jesus' fault. Death, make no mistake about it, is our fault. The Bible teaches that every one of us will face death and that the reason for this death is sin. When God designed the universe, He didn't design it that people would die. He designed the world so that we could live forever in paradise, loving Him, enjoying Him, worshiping. But death entered the world because of sin. In fact, Romans 5 says this, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is a universal truth. Sin is the consequences of, or rather death is the consequences of our sin against a holy God. But Jesus, in the face of this reality of physical and spiritual death, says, though He dies, it's inescapable, you can't get away from it, though He dies, yet He will live. Physical death for Jesus, and in the Gospel world, physical death is no longer final. Physical death is the very gateway to eternal Life. Now, Martha had some sense of this, didn't she? She looks at Jesus and she says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Somewhat of a statement of trust, isn't it? Jesus, I know you can do anything. But there's still that element of doubt in Martha's mind, even when she gets to the tomb of her brother. Even when she gets to this space, she questions Jesus. Jesus, won't there be a smell? He's been dead for this long. She hasn't yet come to believe that Jesus could actually raise her brother from the dead. And Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. So Martha says, I know that he's going to rise again on the resurrection of the last day. She spouts off some doctrine that she's been told. There's confusion in Martha's mind about Jesus raising her brother right now. She doesn't get that that's about to take place. But even more important than that, 
Martha is hanging all of her hope on some tradition without ever receiving the person who makes that possible. That's why Jesus makes the statement in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus jumps right past her argument of how a man can live again, right past what it will look like to a more fundamental claim of how resurrection is even possible. It is because Jesus is the very embodiment of resurrection. Do you see the claim there? Jesus doesn't say, I can raise your brother. That's not the promise. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If there's going to be any resurrection, if there's going to be any life, then it's going to be found in me. Jesus is teaching us this, that He is the resurrection and the life upon which all people must believe. He goes on to take not only what He's saying to Martha and apply it to her, but what He's saying and apply it to us. He says, anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the resurrection and the life upon which all people must believe. Before there's ever going to be a conversation about living again, there must be an understanding that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He uses the words again, I am. It's the same claim that he said we've seen over and over. The ego I me, the I am God. Jesus is claiming here to be God in human flesh. And he's saying, I am the very definition, the very embodiment, the very source, the beginning and the end of all resurrection and life. There is no life outside of me. It's a statement of power and authority first. This statement is a statement of power and authority. Jesus is God. And as God, He, he deals the, de- the decisive blow on death so that death itself comes to an end. He is the one who ultimately defeats death finally. The Bible tells us that it wasn't even possible that death should hold Jesus. Amen, church? We celebrate Easter because it wasn't even possible in Him going to that grave that death could ultimately hold Him because Jesus has sovereign power and authority over death. It's a statement of power and authority. It's a statement of exclusivity. Exclusivity. Meaning, if there's going to be any resurrection from the dead, it's only going to be found in Jesus. You're not going to find life anywhere else outside of Jesus, apart from Jesus. It's not Jesus plus a myriad of a bunch of other things. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that provides life. Jesus is the only one who can save us. It's a statement of exclusivity and it is a statement of finality. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's decisive. It's final. No more to the story. Jesus says, it is finished. Final. It's a statement of finality. So back to the question that we began with. Where does hope in death ultimately come from? Where does hope in death ultimately come from? Notice this in the story. Get this deep within you. Hope in death 
does not come ultimately from stopping it. Hope in death comes in defeating it, which is so much better. Because it means that even though, and it's guaranteed, we will face death, it means that for the believer, it has no hold on us because Jesus has already won. That's much better news than stopping it, right? I can hold death off for a while and live maybe 60, 70, 80, 100 years, but at the end of the day, I can't live forever here on this earth. Death is reality. My prayer is not, Jesus, will you hold off death for a little while? My prayer is, Jesus, will you come and take my death in my place so that I might live forever? This is the reality of what the gospel provides. And Jesus is the resurrection. He's the one who has sovereign power and authority over death. He's the final victor. He's the one that renders the death blow. You could die. That's the worst that could happen in your life now if you're a believer. It's the worst that could happen. But then you'll live forever. Such good news. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we have nothing to lose. This is why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 4, Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why? Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you ultimately die because Jesus is going to cause a great resurrection by His power. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your, or death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is from that reality that Paul tells us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. We live life now as if death has, has become an end. That there is no more death. Hope in death does not come from stopping it, but in defeating it. And Jesus has done this. So that's the first question. Where does hope come from? The second question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life upon which all people must believe. So the question is, do you believe this? Because this is a truth that is not universally applied. You need to understand that. Not everyone has eternal life in Jesus. Only those who believe have eternal life in Jesus. And there must be the point of decision in a person's life where you answer this question, do I really believe the gospel? It's not a question for the Bible to answer. It's a question every single one of us can, must, and will answer. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Of the living God. And will you trust in Him for your salvation? This is the question Jesus asks. It's the very question He asked Martha. 
Verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, again, spouts off this thing that she's always been taught. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And again, as clear as Martha's confession here is, there's still doubt in her mind. You fast forward to the tomb, you see it. In verse 39, later in the chapter, Jesus makes it plain whenever He says, take away the stone, and He tells Lazarus to rise. And the the statement to Martha is, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha did not yet believe. She was full of words. There was an abstract belief, but she had missed the person of the gospel. In essence, Jesus looks her in the eye and he says, I know what your faith teaches you, but I'm asking you, do you believe this? Jesus is asking, by the way, the same question to every person in this room. Do you believe this? All that we've been reading so far in the gospel of John, from John chapter one until now. The decision must be made. Do you believe this? There comes a point of decision. But then it begs the question, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? There are many today who would say, I I believe in Jesus. But you know, the Bible teaches that even the demons believe. And the Bible says that they even tremble. They fear God. What is the dividing line between a person who believes biblically and a person who just simply spouts off words? When Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? He's not asking whether she believes that he's going to raise her brother from the dead. She's not being asked, is there some place out there in the distance in some vague superficial kind of way where you believe that there's going to be a resurrection of all people. It's not just believing a certain set of facts. It's believing in a person. That's why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. To believe the Gospel is to come to know Jesus. To believe the Gospel is to come to love Jesus. It is to come to worship Jesus, to follow Jesus, to believe the gospel is for Jesus to become your resurrection and your life, everything that you are. So you might be able to say the right things like Martha did, but have you come to know and trust the person, Jesus himself? That's the question. Do you believe this? Three things very quickly that we should notice about the faith that Martha expressed following Jesus' question. Do you believe this? She was not there yet, but she evidences that she is on her way. And there are three essential characteristics of what it means to really believe here in this final verse, final few verses. Number one, faith in Jesus must be personal. It must be personal. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she gives again this this statement about the resurrection on the last day, something that she's always been taught. 
but it's never been personal for her. It's, it's very interesting to me that here she is, by the way, having a conversation with a friend. These were friends of Jesus. And she says back to Jesus about him rising from the dead. She falls back on doctrine rather than the very person who's standing in front of her. Can I tell you that there are many professing believers who know all of the Sunday school answers and they can give you all of the right ones, but they do not know the person of Christ. And it's tragic because you know all of these things about God, but you don't know God. You see, our our hope does not lie in a creed or a confession. The creed and the confession is helpful to tell us what we do believe about Jesus, but unless it points us to the person rather than to a piece of paper, then we've missed it altogether. We will not stand around in heaven spouting off all of the Bible trivia answers that we learned in Sunday school. We will stand around in heaven adoring Jesus Himself. The good news of salvation is not that I got out of hell. The good news of salvation is that I have been restored to the person of God in Christ. That's the good news. Friend, it is a personal confession, not just something that you inherit, not something that you learn. It is someone you come to know. So many of our children have missed this. I praise God for Christian tradition. Amen? That holds what has been handed down as precious, the gospel. And passes it on to faithful men. And they continue to preach this gospel. I am thankful for church history. But if our children only get exposed by osmosis to the gospel and they never really come to know Jesus Himself, then they've missed it altogether. It must be personal. I cannot come to know Christ because my parents believed. I cannot come to know Christ and be called a Christian because I was a member of a church. I come to know Christ because I've met Him personally. There must be a point at which you decide personally to follow Christ, to turn from your sin and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. This is my personal confession. It must be personal. Secondly, second major characteristic, faith in Jesus must be biblical. Must be biblical. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is, according to John chapter 1, He is the revelation of God. Jesus is the Word become flesh and having dwelt among us. Jesus is the truth. And we now know Jesus through the written Word of God, through His revealed special revelation in His Word. You cannot know Jesus apart from ultimately coming to Jesus through His Word. This is why he says, I am the resurrection life. He is the one who ultimately reveals himself through his word. We don't get to make up our own Jesus. Define who he is. Say we love him and therefore declare ourselves Christians. 
The Jesus who saves, listen, is the Jesus of the Bible. We are people of the Bible. If this is not, if the Jesus we serve is not the same Jesus as the Bible, the Jesus we made up cannot save us. And by the way, we can gather in church every Sunday morning and we can worship some made up Jesus and who we think he is. But if he's not the Jesus of the Bible, it's just idolatry. It's just idolatry. Faith in Jesus must be biblical. It must be based on Jesus' revelation of himself. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. We come to know who Jesus is through His Word. It does not mean that God does not speak to people in places where they have not come to knowledge of the Word yet and begin this process of bringing them to faith in Christ. But faith comes through the Word of God. And we must trust in a biblical Jesus. The promise of Jesus' eternal life is rooted in a biblical Gospel. Without it, there is no life. His Power, His authority, declaring these things as the revealed Word of God. And so faith in Jesus must be biblical. Finally, faith in Jesus must be confessional. Must be confessional. After the question, do you believe this? Here's what Martha says to Jesus. And she is right in this. She may not be there yet. But listen to what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The question demands an answer, a verdict. And it's not a verdict that is simply a heart response, because what the heart decides, the mouth confesses. You follow me? You, you can't be a closet Christian. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says, the mouth speaks. Real Christianity is confessional. It declares with the mouth, believes in its heart. It it, it confesses Christ as Lord. This is what it means to be a Christian. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is heart, mouth, life. It is a life confession of following Jesus. What is the confession? Well, it is what Martha says here. That Jesus is Lord. Interesting that she doesn't confess Him as Savior first. She confesses Him as Lord first. Because coming to faith in Christ is the realization that I have sinned against a holy God and I am under the sovereign hand of God in His mercy if I'm ever going to be saved. I don't come first demanding the benefits of salvation. I come first bowing the knee before King Jesus and pleading for mercy. And it is then and only then that we recognize Jesus as the Christ, the One who is promised to provide eternal life. He is Lord and Christ. He is Son of God. 
The only one able to conquer our death. The only one able to die in our place. The only one able to satisfy a holy God in the place of sinners. And He is the one coming into the world. Or us looking back on the cross. He is the one who has come into the world. And the one who is coming again. He is Savior and Lord, King of Kings. And the only one who can provide eternal life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So the invitation is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? It's the question of the text. And he says, not just to Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a decision to make personally to believe upon Christ. And so will you say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world with every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, if that would be your heart confession, you have never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It's never become personal for you. It's kind of something you've just grown up in, but you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I want to invite you this very morning to step out of the place where you'll be standing in a few moments as an expression of your repentance, turning from the sin that condemns you, that brings death into your life, and say right now today, Jesus, I want to be saved. Jesus, I need life. I need forgiveness. I confess you today as my Lord and my Savior. I believe you died on the cross for me. And today with everything that I am, I give my life to you, King Jesus. Would you save me? Today in a few moments, if that's your prayer, I want to invite you to stand and step out of the place of where you are. Come down this, down this aisle to this altar. Pastor, today I want to follow Jesus. Today you pray and trust in Him. And God will save you. If you'll come. Others in this room, you need a reminder that you have no no fear in death. That Christ has conquered it for you. He is the resurrection and the life. So that anything you face in this life, come what may, even to the point of death, that Jesus is victor. And today you win in Him. Keep trusting Him for every moment. So whatever it is this morning, whatever decisions on your heart, whatever thing you need to offer up to the Lord in prayer, you come this morning as we stand all across the room. Would you stand with me? Father, we ask for You to have Your way in our hearts and in this place. May we be obedient to You. May You be honored in this place. As we sing, as we obey You, and as we leave, I pray, God, that You would be honored by our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. You come still and lead us. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening. 
And may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.